scripture today comes from Acts 17, verses 22 through 32. Paul then stood up in the meeting of the Areopagus and said, People of Athens, I see that in every way you are very religious, for I walked around and looked carefully at your objects of worship. I even found an altar with this inscription, to an unknown God. So you are ignorant of the very thing you worship, and this is what I'm going to proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples built by human hands. And he's not served by human hands as if he needed anything. Rather, he himself gives everyone life and breath and everything else. From one man, he made all the nations that they should inhabit the whole earth. And he marked out their appointed times in history and the boundaries of their lands. God did this so that they would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him though he is not far away from any one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. As some of your own poets have said, we are his offspring. Therefore, since we are God's offspring, we should not think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image made by human design and skill. In the past, God overlooked such ignorance, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. For he has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. He has given proof of this to everyone by raising him from the dead. When they heard about the resurrection of the dead, some of them sneered, but others said, we want to hear you again on this subject. This is the word of the Lord. Be seated. Over the years, I've had the privilege of knowing some people who are remarkably gifted evangelists. People have just this remarkable ability to share the truths about Jesus Christ with others. Over the years, I've also had the opportunity to hear some people who have proclaimed the gospel and done it in ways that left me kind of troubled, concerned. Um, so I've heard both. Uh, two of the times when I've heard it that were probably most troubling to me was when I was a youth pastor. Uh, one occasion was I took a youth group to Reynosa, Mexico, just across the border into Mexico, and we worked there with um, largely with um, people that lived in little kind of squatter communities along the border. And one of the things we did, we went with a mission organization that sent us out, and there were several churches that sent youth groups, and they would send us out to a local church there, and we would work with a pastor all week doing a vacation Bible school. And every night at the end of the day, we would come back to this large church where we were staying, and we'd get together with all the other youth groups, and we would... Um, have a worship service and kind of share what had happened during the day with each other and encourage each other. Well, one of the things they required me to do, this mission organization, as the youth pastor, was every day when we would return from our running our vacation Bible school, they wanted me to come back and report to them what had happened during the day. And I would meet with them, and every day the first question would be, did any of these kids or the parents come to know Christ as their Savior? And they wanted a report on that. And I would tell them if some had or, you know, how many. Well, as the week went on, 
um, they started kind of coaching me and telling me that there weren't enough, that I needed to see that more people were coming to know Christ. And so they would kind of a little bit reprimand me because we weren't bringing in enough numbers. And, and so as the week went on, I started explaining to them. I said, well, if, if I'm understanding what you're saying, right, I said, I'm sending out all these high school kids from the United States to work with uh, these children in Mexico from very poor homes, very poor community. I said, I could pretty well get every one of those children to say yes to anything I want them to say yes to. So if you want me to get them to all say yes, I've accepted Jesus as my Savior, I can pretty well get them to do it every day, and I can get them to do it again and again every other day. I mean, they'll just keep doing it if we ask them to do it, because they just wanted to do anything that those high school kids wanted them to do. So I said, I've actually been coaching my kids to be careful about that, to be careful to make sure these kids understand, to be careful that they're working with a translator and making sure the kids truly understood what they're responding to. In a little bit, they coached me to stop doing that. They wanted the responses more than they wanted the understanding. We had some long, hard conversations. Uh, and, and the odd thing was, though, I would say it was a group of people that was truly zealous for people to know Jesus. They truly wanted to do that. I think sometimes they kind of lost sight of what that meant, but they truly were just passionate about wanting people to come to know Christ. But sometimes we're taking a route to it that I felt like missed something really important, truly believing uh, as part of that choice. A second experience I had as a youth pastor was I was in Connecticut. So this was over 25 years ago. I was in Connecticut as a youth pastor, and I took my youth group up to a retreat in New Hampshire. It was a weekend retreat, again, with several churches coming together, and a speaker was brought in to speak at the event. And he was a well-known national speaker uh, for youth. And so we went to this retreat, and again, wonderful message he gave. But then at the end of the message, uh, he, he gave an invitation. And the invitation kind of started with inviting people who just, you know, talking to the teenagers and saying, if there are just things in your life that you kind of want to change and you want to change direction and move closer to Christ, would you come forward and pray and we'll pray with you? And so a group of kids did. And then he said he kind of expanded the invitation and the invitation was to those kids out there who um, didn't know Jesus as their savior. If they would like to come up and someone would pray with them and speak with them about Jesus and he invited them up and a group of kids came. And the invitation just kept expanding to include more and more. Which, again, and there were many kids, I think, making very sincere responses to that invitation, had heard the gospel presented. They were sincere responses. And again, I think this man was truly zealous uh, for the gospel. He wanted people to know Jesus. He was passionate about it. I, I had brought with me, I was in a community in Connecticut. It was a very large Jewish population in the community. Along with me had come uh, three kids out of Jewish homes who were non-Christians, who were friends of people in my youth group. Um, we brought several other kids that were friends of people in my youth group that were non-believers. And I was glad for them to hear the gospel presented. But as we were sitting in this row with this large group of kids, and some of my kids had responded, several of these kids, this was the first time they'd even heard the gospel presented. They weren't even sure what they were hearing. And as this invitation went on and went on and went on, at one point, he asked everyone that was up front to stand and to turn and look at the audience, which was only about half the people left. 
And he said, now, all of you sitting out there, don't you want to be like them? And he had all of them stand and stare at them. Don't you want to be like them and come up here now so that you can know Jesus? Um, he and I had a very long, hard conversation after. Uh, because the response amongst many of my kids was anger. Amongst many of my kids was, so this is what Christians are all about. Forcing me somehow to trust Jesus. That's, that's what you guys do. Matter of fact, even some of those that their response was sincere, I think then felt a little bit embarrassed about their response. Because they felt like maybe they'd been manipulated in some way. Because the gospel kind of got lost in the presentation. The gospel was there, but somehow the approach and the method to try and get a response kind of lost sight of the fact that the power of the gospel is in the message. The power of the gospel is the one about whom we speak. It's him. It's not, it's not that the method is the most important thing. The message is the most important thing. The method does matter, though. When I came to this passage today, one of the things uh, I thought about was here is a wonderful presentation of how Paul presented the gospel to a group of people who this was a new message. Most of his listeners had no idea what he was talking about. It was a strange idea, Scripture tells us to them, and how he approached it. Now, I do not believe this is the way to present the gospel to groups of people. I believe it's a way, and we find other methods throughout Scripture. But it's a great example of where someone came into a community that really, this gospel was a strange thing. This message about the good news of Jesus Christ was strange to them. And how did Paul approach it? How did he communicate this message to them? Well, to set up the story real quickly, you remember last week I talked about Paul and Philippi. And uh, they'd been, he and Silas had been arrested there. He was there with Timothy, probably Luke, Silas himself, and, and he and Silas had been arrested. Remember the earthquake, and eventually they're released from jail. And then they move on. Eventually they land in Thessalonica, where again, they're publicly telling the truth about Jesus Christ, presenting the good news. And we're told there that a group of Jewish people in the community began kind of hassling them and persecuting them, and real trouble happened to the point that they eventually had to move on. And then they eventually landed in Berea. And they get to the town of Berea. Well, this group in Thessalonica heard they were in Berea doing the same thing, so they came there. They followed them there. And then they began persecuting and hassling them in Berea. So then we're told that um, it seems like Timothy and Silas wanted Paul to go on, probably because he was the main speaker. He was the one kind of the public figure that was presenting the gospel. And so he was probably the main target of persecution. So they sent him on told him to go on to Athens and we'll come a little later and we'll meet you there. They probably stayed behind to take care of some of these new believers in town to help establish this new community of believers. But they sent Paul on, probably to protect him. So he went on to Athens, went south to Athens. And we're told when he gets to Athens, and again, I'm thinking Athens, one of the most beautiful cities in the world. Now, this is about five centuries after Athens' real heyday. You know, when they were the, the world power. So this is, this is much later. But they are still a, a beautiful, well-known city, a famous city. Their city maybe doesn't have the same political power they used to have. That now resides in Rome. But they are a city known for incredible cultural influence. They had incredible influence in things like the arts, in religion, in philosophy, in education. So a very, very influential city. 
Also a beautiful city, known for its beauty. It was world-renowned for that. So Paul arrives there, and again, he's supposed to wait for Timothy and Silas, who are going to come later. And, and if you think of it, if this is me, I'm thinking, time for a vacation, right? Life's been hard, getting hassled everywhere. I'm really supposed to be waiting for people to come. And I mean, the main reason I'm here is to get me out of trouble, right? And we're told Paul walks through this beautiful city where he could take a break. But immediately we're told that he was greatly distressed. And he was greatly distressed. And that term there could mean he was frustrated. It could even mean he was angry. He was greatly distressed because this was a city full of idols. It is said of, it had been said of Athens that it would be easier to find a god in Athens than a man because there were so many idols. More idols in the city of Athens than all the rest of Greece put together. Everywhere you turn, there was an idol to some god, to this multitude of gods that they worshiped. And he walks through this town and we're told that he was just frustrated. Honor that belonged to his God, the one and only true God, was being given to all these many idols. And it frustrated him. Michael Green, who's the author of an excellent book called Evangelism in the Early Church, wrote this. Early Christians believed implicitly, implicitly that Jesus was the only hope for the world. The only way to God for the human race. Now, if you believe that outside of Christ there is no hope, it is impossible to possess an atom of human love and kindness without being gripped with a great desire to bring people to this one way of salvation. He said you saw it again and again and again. Paul couldn't, couldn't hold it in. When he saw these idols, when he saw people worshiping false gods, he could not help but proclaim that there is another way, a true way. Even though this is a time to kind of be safe, maybe to take a break, not for Paul. He was zealous for the gospel. He couldn't help but tell others about it, and he did. And we're told that he reasoned in the synagogue and in the marketplace with anyone who would listen. Any place he could get an audience, he was going to tell them. And two groups that he caught the attention of were two groups of philosophers, the schools of philosophy that were in Athens. So these two groups started paying attention to what he was saying, and we're told that they started disputing with him, sort of debating with him. They were the Epicureans and the Stoics. Now, I am in no way a philosopher. When Bob starts talking philosophy with me, my mind usually goes numb. Uh, so I don't fully understand the Epicureans and the Stoics. But a couple of things that I've read about them, the Epicureans were told, uh, their view of God was sort of that God was far removed. He was, there were gods, but they were, they were far removed from men. They really could care less about us. And so they were there. But they were worrying about themselves and taking care of themselves, didn't really care that much about us. And so kind of the, the goal of man was live your life. Don't worry about the gods. Live your life. Take care of yourself. Pursue pleasure, but especially the pleasures of the mind, especially this idea of tranquility. That's what matters most. The Stoics, a different camp, kind of believed that divinity lay within, within all believers, all, all uh, beings, within all things, that divinity was sort of in everything. Um, and that their goal was a little more to, to kind of make that connection with nature and with reason, to live life in that connection and according to that sort of stream of that the d divine is in everything. The divine wasn't really personal. It was just more in everything. So this real connection to nature and reason. And both of these groups described Paul as a babbler, 
uh, I don't think they meant he just talks too much. The word babbler means a seed picker. And the idea there is one who, like a bird who goes around and picks up seeds different places, he was sort of a plagiarizer. He just floated around and picked up ideas from different places and put them together and called them his own. He was a guy without an original thought. So he was just spouting the ideas of others. That's all he was. And then they called him someone who was advocating foreign gods. Uh, it's believed that they actually thought he was talking about this, these dual gods, this kind of God couple, Jesus and the resurrection. They mistook when he talked about the resurrection for being sort of the, the uh, female companion of this God, Jesus. He talked about the resurrection so much they personified it. They thought that uh, this was another God. And so they thought he was talking about the, Jesus and the resurrection, these new foreign gods. And, and that's a little more of a dangerous accusation that he was bringing foreign gods in because that was an accusation that 450 years earlier Socrates was accused of and led to his condemnation and trial. Uh, so this, this wasn't necessarily a popular thing to be, someone who's advocating foreign gods. So we're told that they took him. And the, the phrase took him could mean they just led him somewhere, could mean they actually drug him somewhere. We're not really sure which. But for some reason, somehow, they got him to go to the Oropagus. The word Oropagus just means Mars Hill. So it was a famous location in Athens. And this famous place in Athens in the past had been sort of the seat of the court that kind of was over the whole empire, the Greek empire. Uh, now again, probably not as much a court as it had been in that time, but still the place that the Council of Athens met and in some ways probably still served as a court. But again, think about it this way. These are some of the, the world's best thinkers, some of the leaders of, of this world-renowned city, one of the most famous cities in the world. And Paul is brought before them to make his case. Whether he's drugged there, invited there, he now stands before these world-renowned leaders and thinkers. This guy who left little Berea to get away from persecution, starts speaking a little bit wherever someone will listen, now stands before some of the greatest minds and leaders in the world, people who influence culture around the world. And he gets to now present to them what he's been talking about, his strange ideas. Isn't it interesting how God works? So, if you have your Bibles, we turn to Acts 17 with me. I'd love you to follow through. I'm going to reread back through some of what you've already heard read to give it a little extra attention here. So how does he then present the gospel to them? What does he say? Some have argued that Luke is just summarizing what he said. Maybe this is exactly what he said. We do know that later he went on and explained more. So maybe this was just kind of his summary introduction. Or maybe this is just a summary of what he taught. But nonetheless, these are kind of the central points that Paul wanted to make to this audience who this was new. These were strange ideas. In verse 22 of chapter 17. Men of Athens, I see that in every way you are very religious. For as I walked around and looked carefully at your objects of worship, I even found an altar with this inscription to an unknown God. Now, now what you worship as something unknown, I'm going to proclaim to you. I think it's interesting, and I see Jesus do this many times, that as he begins speaking to this group of people, he, he makes connection in some way. He lets them know that there is still some common ground. I'm going to talk to you about something that's going to be strange to you, but there is some common ground. 
you're very religious people. And of course, they thought he was a very religious person. You're somebody who cares about worship. You, you have objects of worship everywhere. Matter of fact, you even care so much about worship. You even have an idol that you erected to a God you're not even sure who he is. You just want to make sure you've covered your bases and worshiped any God that needs worship, right? There's sort of a sense of common ground. I'm religious. I care about worship, obviously. Um, it's one of the things I think about often as we walk into a discussion where there's disagreement. So one of the places I run into it most often is when I'm talking with married couples where there's struggles, some disagreement that they just can't get past. And one of the things I observe that I do many times and that people I'm talking with often do is we, we understand that difference, disagreement, disconnects us. It creates kind of a relational gap, right? When, there, when there's some area of difference, it feels a little threatening, like maybe because there's difference, we won't be as connected as we were before. So our goal becomes we need to, we need to resolve that difference. We need to find sameness again, right? We need to somehow get on the same page. Either I need to drag you to my side or go to your side or find some compromise, but we have to be the same because this feels kind of relationally threatening to us. And what we often do is we get so focused on the difference and resolving the difference, it's all we talk about. I've sat with couples many times where it's, you know, maybe it's about finances, for instance. We have a different view about how to handle finances. And one side is going to present their view as passionately as they can, and the other side is going to present their view as passionately as they can. Both longing for connection. But the path to connection, we believe, a lot of times is I've got to make my case for my side of the difference. Where what I find is often true, if I could sit with that same couple, or again, if I can remind myself in conversations with my own wife, is difference all that's here right now? So even if we're talking about finances, is it only difference? Are there some common threads of connection that we share even right now, even despite this difference existing? Do we have some common values about how we spend our money and what's important to us? Do we have some common understandings about how money should be handled? Are any of those things there? And what I find is if I become a detective of those things and remind myself of those things, maybe remind my wife of those things, and those things start coming back more into view, suddenly the threat of difference starts going down a little bit. It doesn't feel quite as scary as it was before. Difference is still threatening, right? But maybe a little less. Now that the difference isn't quite uh, as important, it's not the only thing that connects us, now maybe we can walk back into it a little differently. Maybe a little more willing to hear instead of just defend our position. Well, I see that in scripture again and again. I see Jesus do that often. I think Paul does that often. Where there's sort of a, you know, there is some ground of connection here. It's not all difference. But there's difference. Because I would say sometimes I can become such a, a detective of connection that I go, yeah, let's just stay away from the difference. Paul doesn't do that either, right? He pretty quickly starts walking into difference. Um, he says in verse 24, The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples built by human hands. And he's not served by human hands as if he needed anything. Rather, he himself gives everyone life and breath and everything else. He is the Lord of heaven and earth. He is not in the material things. He's not just, the divine is not just in everything. He is the one who created everything. 
He is the Lord and ruler over everything. He is the source of everything. So the Stoics, he's not just in it. He is above it. He is beyond it. He is the one who's worthy of our worship. And then he goes on in verse 26. From one man he made all nations that they should inhabit the whole earth. And he marked out their appointed times in history and boundaries of their lands. God did this so that they would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him. Though he is not far from any one of us. To the Epicureans, is God just some distant God who doesn't care? God not only created us, God has been actively evolved in the affairs of men. God is a God who is near us. This is not some far off and different God. This is a God who cares about the people he has created, intimately involved with them. And then he does this interesting thing. For in him we live and move and have our being. As some of your own poets have said, we are his offspring. What's interesting here is Paul never quotes scripture, right? He's telling a group of people that probably could have cared less if he quoted scripture. Quoted the Jewish scriptures, so what? They don't even, I'm not sure what they are, let alone care about them. So what does he do? He speaks the truth of scripture. He doesn't really turn to it as the, the kind of authority behind it. Instead, he even says, you know, you're poets. Those voices that you respect, you, you people here love your poets. Even your own poets speak this truth. We are his offspring. You know that, right? We are. He's not just kind of in everything. He's not just far off and distant. He is a personal God who is above and who's beyond us, who created us. He is a God who has the right to tell us what to do. Because he's our creator. He is our ruler. He's the authority over us. He starts where they are, their belief in a divine power, but he quickly begins exposing errors in their teaching. I don't think he does it in a disrespectful way. I don't think he does it in an attacking way. He just presents the truth. He speaks the truth honestly and openly, which many times, as we know, when we follow Paul, it led to people being upset. It's not that he found a way out of offending people. He offended all the time, right? But he offended with the truth. Where he could take away the offense, I think he did. But there are places you can't. See, I think we get stuck on kind of two sides of this thing. Sometimes we are so zealous for the message. We want to, we want to preach the message and we care about this message. And this is the truth and we have the truth, so we're just going to say it. And we forget that, you know, we speak this message that it might be heard. So thinking about who's listening to us, being attentive to who they are and thinking about who is receiving this message, it matters. It's part of the presentation of the gospel. Who are you speaking to? Who are they? How will they hear this? But on the other side, sometimes we can get so caught up in being attentive to the listener, thinking about the listener. As a matter of fact, I would say I probably lean more that side. Being so attentive to the listener and so thinking about how they will hear it and who they are and what it will mean to them that we forget how incredibly powerful and important this message is. It's not just who are they. It's this remarkable message they need to hear. It's being zealous for the truth, for the message, the good news of Jesus Christ. And who is this person standing before me? And how do we bring those two together? He goes on in verse 29. 
Therefore, since we are God's offspring, we should not think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image made by human design and skill. In the past, God overlooked such ignorance. There's a pretty strong statement, right? In the past, God overlooked such ignorance. But now he commands all people everywhere to repent. For he has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. He has given proof to this to everyone by raising him from the dead. And boy, there's probably the most offensive statement in the whole thing. That he commands all people everywhere to repent. In your pantheon of gods, in your many gods, you may be able to say, okay, I can kind of understand what you're saying. This God you worship kind of makes sense to me. That's great. Let's add him. Let's just kind of add him in. It's kind of us saying to people, well, I believe. I believe in Jesus. Jesus is my Lord and Savior. Okay, that's cool. That's kind of cool you believe that. I believe he commands all people everywhere. All people. He's not a God. He's the God. This is not a path. This is the path for all people everywhere. I think that's where Paul gets in trouble a lot of times. The trouble that comes from speaking the truth. Uh, and he points out this worshiping these false images. Um, this is not the truth. And now he's challenging something that, that this whole culture was built on. This is not the truth. One of my favorite passages in Isaiah is Isaiah 44. In Isaiah 44, it's where he, he talks about the fact that, you know, you guys go out and you cut down this tree and you take that piece of wood and then you use some of that wood and you heat your homes with it. You make a fire and you stay warm and you take some of that wood and you cook your meals. You know, you bake your bread with it. And then you take another piece of that wood and you carve it into an image and then you set it on an altar and you bow down and begin to worship it. It's kind of like Isaiah saying, now let's think about that again. You heat your home, you cook your bread, you carve it, and now you bow down and worship it. You control it, you manage it, you use it, you are over it. And now you bow down and worship it as if it's beyond you and has the power to somehow do what you can't do yourself. Is that the craziest thing you've ever heard? It's a piece of wood. And you're worshiping this. And Paul, again, I think, begins to challenge, begins to stir it up. And Paul leads them to, again, what I think is hard for us. It's hard for us as those who are presenting the gospel often to get to that final point of he really presents to them an either or decision. It's not a here's one thought among many, which they were happy to hear. They loved to hear the new ideas. They loved to hear what were the new kind of things going on and the new philosophies and the new thoughts. Paul pretty clearly then comes to this isn't just a new thought. This is something you have to respond to. There's an either or attached to the end of this. Michael Green, that author I mentioned before, says this. A clear dualism runs through every strand of the gospel record of Jesus' teaching. Always we meet this dualism. It is one of the most objectionable elements in the gospel to modern man. There are two ways. A broad path that leads to destruction. The narrow path that leads to life. 
There are two rulers that may hold sway in our lives, God or mammon. The parables, we have the sheep or the goats, the wheat or the tares, the wise versions or the foolish, those who accept the invitation to the wedding feast and those who remain outside. Never is a third option presented. It's an either or. And that's where it gets hard, right? That's where it feels a little scary. When we're telling people there's an either or decision to be made here. To choose him or to reject him. And then we're told that some sneered at him and some, you know, thought what an idiot. Uh, But some wanted to know more. Some wanted to understand more. And we see this in Paul many times. He makes these public presentations and then we're told that he went on and there were conversations that went on with people. Because I think Paul wanted them to understand the power was in the message. The power was in this truth about Jesus Christ. He is the good news. I want you to understand. I don't want to take your choice away from you. I want you to know you have a choice. I don't, I'm not afraid of your choice, so afraid of it that I'm going to find a way to manipulate and control it so you don't have a choice anymore. I want you to choose to understand, to see the truth, and to choose. Again, I think sometimes we get stuck on that kind of continuum of zealous for that message. Boy, really aware of those people who are trying to speak to. Um, I think in a community like this, we can, I think in the United States today, just kind of our culture today, but I think especially in a community like this, a college town, it is easy to kind of so look at the people around us and kind of evaluate who they are and how they'll receive this message that we've, We've kind of decided what they'll choose before they have a choice. We've kind of so evaluated them, we're so aware of them, we've made the decision for them before they even get to make a decision. Um, I know I do that a lot. I, I get to know people, I'm curious about them. That's one of the things I love about Paul. He was attentive to who they were. He says, I carefully looked at your idols. I, I wanted to understand you, who you worship, why you worship. He was attentive to them. He was aware of them, but he didn't lose sight of how important this message was. And he was going to speak this message. It shaped how he spoke it, but it didn't keep him from speaking it, right? Even these people who anyone else might have looked at and said, they are never going to respond to this. He still spoke it to them. Now, a story I've told before, and I look back my sermon when I told it before, and it was nine years ago, so I thought it's safe to recycle now. Most of you weren't even here nine years ago, right? Uh, I went to church in Connecticut, and one of the people in my church was a psychiatrist named Dr. John Mason. Um, he taught at Sunday school there, and uh, he taught at Yale University um, in their school of psychiatry. A brilliant, brilliant man. This man had been the head of one of the most prestigious um, psychiatric organizations in the world. Uh, someone told me once that he'd even been a Nobel Prize candidate at one time for some of his research. Just a remarkably brilliant man. His testimony was that as, you know, he grew up in West Virginia and in a home with a mom who was deeply religious and he had pretty well rejected all of her beliefs and through education he had come to think that he understood things better. Uh, He was beyond all of that silliness that his mom grew up with. And he and his wife were both very, um, very open, bold about their atheism. Uh, Both were professors at Yale. And so as the years went on, he said, I'd pretty well just forgotten about God. And he said, my mom was getting ill, and I decided to go back and visit her back in the hills of West Virginia. 
So he heads back to visit her. And he said, I'm driving by and out of this little church, there is this open tent meeting, an old open tent revival in the hills of Appalachia. Uh, and he said, my thought was, I want to stop and listen to this. It was almost sort of a, a study in, you know, what goes on in these things and the, just kind of how people are manipulated to believe and all these things. And he said it really was to step back as a scholar and just kind of analyze the whole thing. So I, he said, I decided to stop in and listen. And he said, as I listened, it was some little country preacher, an educated preacher, and just preaching, you know, hellfire and brimstone and going to town. He said, I was just in my mind mocking this guy up, down, and sideways. And he said, somewhere in the midst of that presentation, I thought, I believe this message. I believe Jesus Christ is the Son of God. I have no clue why I believe. I can't argue it and defend it. I believe it. And he said, I ended up going forward and responding in this little tent meeting in West Virginia and accepting Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior. And went on and served him for the rest of his life. He died a few years ago. Went on serving and proclaiming Jesus for the rest of his life. Now, if anyone would have told me John Mason is going to come to know Jesus and accept him through a country preacher in West Virginia, I'd say there is no way possible that's going to happen. If I'm aware of who John Mason is, that is not an approach that I'm ever going to consider a possible approach to convince him of the good news about Jesus Christ. But that's the cool thing. The real power is in the truth of the message. Our presentation matters. It does matter. Sometimes I think it matters because we, we create extra obstacles that don't need to be there. Our, our presentation matters because part of the gospel is not just the words we speak, but it's the life that we wrap it up in, right? It's part of the message we proclaim. And when we care about people and we're curious about them and attentive to them, when we, when we love them, we, we speak the truth in love. That is the message. So, so the presentation matters. But man, sometimes we can so be aware of our audience, we forget. But it is a powerful message. And it's powerful because this is God's message for us, his good news for us. Let's pray. And Father, I thank you that these words are more than words. That these words that Paul spoke to this audience, um, they are the truth. They are the truth of your incredible love, of, of your power, of, of the fact that you are the God who is worthy of worship. And despite how powerful and great and beyond us you are, that you have stepped down and become one of us, that we might know you. How thankful we are for your love. And I pray for those here today, Father, if there are those here who do not know Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior, I pray, Father, that they would, they would seek and search and ask questions, uh, whatever it takes, that they might truly come to understand and know you and follow you. In your blessed name, amen.